Welcome to the Building the Cooperative Classroom podcast. I'm so excited to bring you this special series of episodes where we had the opportunity to interview David Johnson. So Aaron and I sat down with him. Uh, Derek was unavailable, but that doesn't matter because this is almost all David all the time. He is such a great storyteller. So David Johnson is uh, one half of the Johnson Johnson Cooperative Learning Institute along with his brother, Roger. David is a professor emeritus of the University of Minnesota where he spent most of his career, but um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think uh, over the series, the course of these next few episodes, you're gonna hear many, many stories. You're gonna hear um, details about how he got involved with cooperative learning, some of the insights that he found, but also um, just a fascinating view of what uh, the life of education research and education looked like throughout his uh, six decade career. So we're so happy to be able to, to talk to him. So this first series of uh, stories that David's gonna tell talks about sort of the origins of cooperative learning and then his um, his early days in research and, and how he came to work with his brother in cooperative learning. And I think we'll cut it off there uh, and pick up the next part of the story next week. So here is David Johnson. So welcome, David Johnson. Um, this is such an honor for you to be with us today. Um, I, I think I speak for Derek, who's not here, and, and Aaron, of course, um, that just we have learned so much from you over the years, and, and you've been definitely an inspiration to us. Um, so thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So I, I, I think how we'll, how we'll get started here is just tell us a little bit about the origins of um, your work with, with Roger in uh, cooperative learning. Well, there's a long version and a short version. So I will start the long version and have you cut me off, you know, when. We will uh, never cut you off. That's, uh, that's, that's yes. anti, anti uh, uh, what we do here. We want to hear. Right. We, we, only, we only cut Derek off. That's it. And if he's not here, we're good. No, you'll cut me off. Um, uh, cooperative learning is not new. It's been here forever. And one of our standard examples is back around 2000 or 3000 BC, I'm not sure, when the Torah was written, they, um, they said there are three things you need to study the Torah. One is a copy of the Torah. Two is a teacher uh, to help you through it. And three is a learning partner because it's much too complex for you to understand by yourself. Now that's one of the uh, earliest documentations of cooperative learning, although I'm sure it goes back to the caves because young uh, kids were trained to hunt as a group, you know, not as single in individuals. And so uh, we've always used cooperative learning in ed education, but there periods of time in which it gets ignored. And so, for example, in the mid-1930s, a group of um, conservative businessmen in the United States kept saying, shouldn't education be competitive? Just think if all the students in, the, uh, in a classroom were competing as hard to learn as they would be running a 100-yard dash you're down the track, uh, achievement would just go out, out of sight, you know, with, uh, with com 
competition. And that um, mentality got stronger and stronger and stronger through the 40s, the 50s. And things came in like um, um, normative evaluation, putting kids on a curve, um, looking at uh, students from highest to lowest, you know, in, in performance and, uh, and so far, so forth. And so by the mid 1960s, uh, competition dominated American education. Now, uh, at that point though, B.F. Skinner came in with program learning. And he said, um, and he had invented something called a teaching machine. And his view is positive reinforcement. That if only we could get kids to um, the focus on simple little questions that almost nobody would miss and then tell them you're right, you got it right. The reinforcement of being right would drive kids into a learning frenzy in which they would just learn more and more and more and more all day long. And in a burst of optimism, uh, Skinner predicted that would by 1975, there would be no teachers in, the, in school. There'd just be his teaching machines and kids sitting at his teaching machines going through the the program, program learning modules as fast as they possibly could. Now, beginning in the, where we come in, or in the late 1950s, early 1960s, I got very involved in the civil rights movement, both in the South and in the North. And one of the um, questions that we all had is, uh, how do you change a prejudiced person to be non-prejudiced? And uh, uh, times this was a life or death matter in the South, but also in the North. The North wasn't all that great in, in comparison. So essentially at that time, I had a, a choice to either uh, be drafted or go to graduate school. And at the time, I didn't want to do either. I wanted to stay involved in the civil rights movement in the South where the action was. But it became clear I was going to have to drop out either for the Army or for getting a doctorate. And um, not because I really wanted to, but because it seemed the best of two alternatives, I chose getting a doctorate. And so uh, I went to uh, Columbia with uh, wanting to find out how, how do you change a prejudiced person to be a non-prejudiced person? Very simple question. I thought all these scholars will surely have uh, a good answer. Then I will take it and go back to Mississippi and, uh, and change, <laughs> change everybody. We're gonna eliminate prejudice uh, from the nation and then perhaps the the world. And, um, but it turned out not to be that simple. But I did run across Alport's The Nature of Prejudice book, of course, and uh, he had five conditions. 
for reducing prejudice. Um, one of them was people have to work cooperatively together to achieve a joint goal. And another one was they have to have personal conversations, you know, get to know each other on a personal level. And I sort of focused. And then a third one was support from authorities, which was beyond our uh, control, basically, because in the early 60s, we spent a lot of time trying to get John Kennedy uh, to stop the violence in the South, and he wasn't convinced. You know, he didn't do anything, which didn't make us great fans of John <laughs> Kennedy, although Robert Kennedy was much more open, much more interested, and much more, uh, more involved. So it wasn't hopeless. At the time in reading Alport, I thought, well, the, the, the two that are most under my control and that uh, are most important of the five is cooperative, cooperative activities and personal conversations. And so the, the plan was to get every student in America uh, involved in cooperative learning groups with diverse classmates, you know, with people that ordinarily they might have prejudice against. And, uh, and as they work together in, in learning groups, they will get to know each other and have personal conversations, a personal relationship with e each other. It seemed so simple and so easy. And so, um, uh, I started out looking at how to make cooperative lessons, how to build, how to create cooperative learning in in the uh, classroom to, to achieve these two goals. And uh, then uh, I had a plan. I thought, well, it'd take me three, four, maybe five years to get cooperative learning established throughout the nation. And then I will start on <laughs> conflict resolution and teach every kid in America how, how to uh, resolve conflicts constructively. And that had taken another four or five years. And then uh, the third one was coping skills. Then I'll get involved in teaching everyone how to cope with adversity because it was clear many lower class kids face adverse conditions that middle-class kids, upper-class kids never even dream of. You know, it's beyond their conception. So I thought we need to teach coping skills. And after that, I thought, well, the, the next step will become clear by then. Of course, here I am 60 years later <laughs> without having accomplished the first goal. And in my retirement ceremony at Minnesota, I had to stand up and say, you're looking at a person who has failed miserably in their, in their career. I set out to end prejudice. It's not ended. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> and, um, but that was one line coming. The civil rights movement was one strong line for us. As I said, I think that's a good place to pause. Next week, we'll pick up 
with David telling the story of uh, what Roger was working on and how the two of them came to start working together. Until then, let's cooperate. Thank you for listening to the Building the Cooperative Classroom podcast, the official podcast of the Johnson & Johnson Cooperative Learning Institute. Please check out the show notes for all relevant links, including a link to our Twitter account and the Cooperative Learning Institute webpage. This podcast is copyrighted under the Creative Commons license, copyright 2021. Theme music, courtesy of Jimmy Ryan.